Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers. However, I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello again, and welcome to what is now the fifth episode of British Murders Season 3. We're at the halfway point now. I hope everyone is enjoying this latest season. I'm getting a lot of nice feedback on YouTube, which is appreciated, and makes me think that this new style of podcast is a positive one and it's been well received. I'm going to do a shout out for another podcast at the end of the show for my mate Lyndon, so stick around for that as I think you might like it. If you're listening, bud, I do apologise it's taken me so long to do this, but my memory is shite. I've said it on last week's episode, Everyone that knows me can back up about how terrible my short-term memory is. I'd use the common phrase that my memory is like that of a goldfish, but contrary to popular belief, goldfish actually have a much longer memory than we realise. Random fact of the day, and how I said that, well, I'm cracking up as you can probably hear. What a stupid fact, but it's brilliant, because everyone thinks that they've got these shit memories, when they actually don't. But let's move on to this week's episode. I had a bit of difficulty naming this one for a start. The subject of the episode, Colin Ireland, targeted his victims based on their sexuality. Essentially, gay men were who he chose. Now, as a result, UK tabloids gave him a nickname which I simply wasn't comfortable naming the episode after. They called him the Gay Slayer. Now, I get why they did that. Gay rhymes with slay and slayer is like you know, a serial killer, like a horror movie villain. But the fact that they give these murderers such... It's not cool, but they give them these monikers which make them appear like mysterious and and have an air of coolness about them, which I just don't like. So the best I could come up with was what I eventually settled on was the homicidal homophobe. It sums up him and the case perfectly. Let me know what your thoughts are in regards to that title. I realise a lot of podcasts name their episodes after the victims to take the attention away from the murderer, though in a lot of my cases that simply isn't possible as there's often several victims. I just wanted to clear that up as it's been bugging me for a while now. Colin Ireland was born in the town of Dartford, which is located within the borough of Dartford, which itself is located in the southeastern county of Kent. As always, let's take a look at some random history and facts relating to the area where Colin was born. Now, the actual events of this story don't take place in Dartford, or in Kent for that matter. They take place in London. But let's focus on the borough of Dartford and Kent regardless. The most interesting bit of history, to me anyway, was that in the mid-1930s, an amateur archaeologist named Alvin T. Marston found two separate fossilised skull fragments. They were human skull fragments. Found in the town of Swanscombe. Swanscombe, Swanscombe. Let me know if you're from there, but I think it's Swanscombe. Which falls within the borough of Dartford. The two fragments were initially classified as belonging to the Swanscombe man. Dated to roughly 300,000 years ago, the fragments are some of the oldest fossilised human remains ever found. 
A third skull fragment was found in 1955 by Bertram Weimer and his son John Weimer. It was later revealed that the Swanscombe man was in fact female. Belonging to a woman in her early 20s, the remains represent an archaic form of Homo sapiens, otherwise known as modern human beings such as you and me. The name of this extinct species of human is, bear with me, I'll try and get this right, Homo heidelbergensis. Hodor, <laughs> Hodor, Homo heidelbergensis, I think that's how you say it, and they existed between 500,000 and 200,000 years ago. That was known as the Lower Paleolithic Period of the Old Stone Age. See, I could be an archaeologist if I wanted to be. And you always learn something new and interesting with British murders, even if it's nothing to do with the case. That is interesting though, isn't it? 300,000 years ago, and they found the skull of this woman. From Homo heidelbergensis. That's crazy to me. If you don't think that shit's interesting, then you need to just reevaluate yourself, I think. We do bloody love our history here on this podcast. Now that was a long old fact, granted. So let's do some quick fire facts and then get on with the story. Henry VIII at one point lived in Dartford with Anne of Cleves, the fourth of his six total wives. Queen Elizabeth I also had private residence in Dartford. Canterbury Cathedral, a UNESCO World Heritage Site located in Canterbury, Kent, was the scene of an horrific assassination in 1170. The victim was Thomas Beckett, who was the cathedral's archbishop at the time of his murder. Rural Kent is nicknamed the Garden of England due to its abundance of orchids and hop gardens. Pocahontas, the famous Native American princess, is reportedly buried at St George's Church in Gravesend, northwest Kent. She was allegedly buried beneath the church's chancel, which is the name for the space surrounding the altar. Alright, my waffle and random historical facts are done. Let's get back to the story of Colin Island. He was born illegitimately as Colin Williams on March 16th, 1954, to teenage parents. He never knew who his father was as he left not too long after Colin was born, but his mother was a 17-year-old newsagent's assistant. I'm not sure what that job entails, but it likely can be translated as simply a convenience store clerk. Colin's childhood didn't have much stability, something which kids need and thrive for. He was very slim in his younger years. Some have described him as lanky, which is just a bit of a nastier way of saying skinny. It always makes me think of the term lanky streak of piss. I'm not sure if that's an exclusively British term, but it's rather insulting. Colin and his mother moved house regularly. They would often move back to his mum's parents' house, then move back out when she got a new partner. Eventually, Colin's mum met a man whom she married, and Colin's surname was changed from Williams to Ireland, his stepfather's surname. Colin was regularly bullied at school by his fellow pupils, and was also on the receiving end of corporal punishment from his teachers. Corporal punishment in school was completely legal in the UK until 1986, and was typically served in the form of being struck with a rattan cane. Another key thing to mention with regards to Colin's childhood is that he claims to have been approached by four different men on separate occasions with the intention of getting Colin to have sex with them. None of the approaches actually led to anything, but it's frightening to think that this sort of stuff actually does happen to kids all over the world. According to Colin, the first incident involved a man saying he would give him a necklace to give to his mum if Colin performed a sex act on him. 
The second time, which happened when Colin was only 12, happened in a public toilet. The man apparently stood on the toilet seat and peered over the cubicle whilst he was doing his business. The third incident happened when Colin was watching a film at the cinema. This time it was someone he knew, his optician. He also asked Colin to perform a sex act on him. The fourth and final approach of Colin's youth came from a man working in a charity shop. Again, he made inappropriate advances towards Colin. Whether these instances were true or not, we'll never know. I'm not dismissing them, but at the same time, I'm not explicitly confirming they are true. It does seem like rotten luck to be approached by four separate men from all walks of life and for nothing to have ever happened. The worrying thing is that paedophiles actually do come from all walks of life. One happy memory from Colin's childhood was his time spent in the Sea Cadets. According to their website, the Sea Cadets help teenagers to stretch themselves and become the best they can be. They know what that takes because they've been doing it for over 160 years. It's basically a kid's version of the Royal Navy, who work with kids between the ages of 10 and 18. It teaches them discipline, confidence, self-belief, etc. I read in one of my sources that Colin loved dressing up in the uniform. It did make me think of Rodney Trotter and his uniform obsession, I must admit. Even though he enjoyed the Sea Cadets, Colin didn't appear to transfer the skills he learned there across to his schoolwork, and he ended up leaving high school at the age of 15, he had no qualifications when he left. Not too long after he left school, he became known to the police. He first got done for burglary in 1970 when he was just 16 years old, so it only took him a year after leaving school before he was in trouble with the law. No surprises here when I tell you he ended up in several different barstools throughout his late teenage years. He first got sent to one in 1971 and claims to have been bullied there as he was in school. After being released, he was sent back to another bar stall in 1974 after being arrested for theft. Clearly the lesson hadn't been learned. His first proper sentence in an adult prison came in 1977 when he was 23. The charge was a touch more serious in that it involved blackmail. He was sent to prison again in 1979. Once more, the sentence handed to him was for two years, this time for being in possession of an offensive weapon as well as robbery. It didn't state what the offensive weapon was in my research, but it could have been anything from a knife, a gun, to a crossbow, or even a laser pen. He'd robbed a cinema and tied up the manager in the process. Colin always described everything apart from the cinema job as petty crimes. Stuff like shoplifting, driving whilst banned, little things like that. He wasn't exactly El Chapo, let's put it that way. Even so, it seems to me that his crimes did appear to be escalating. Tying someone up and robbing the premises is a pretty serious offence if you think about it. As he grew older, he took his love of the outdoors to the next level as he became obsessed with what is known as survivalism. This is the stuff that people like Ray Mears and Bear Grylls promote. How to survive in the wilderness, how to hunt and make fires, that kind of stuff. He even turned into a full kit wanker and started dressing from head to toe in camouflage gear. It must have been weird for everyone else to just see a floating head flying past them. Colin was also far from the lanky streak of piss he used to be as a child. He was six feet tall, around 15 stone, with closely cropped hair. A rather imposing figure. According to some of his former colleagues, 
He used to bang on about how he would camp out in the woods and watch the birds so he knew which berries were edible. He would also explain in great detail about how to capture, kill and cook a snake. Now I wasn't sure how many snakes we had in the UK wilderness so I did a little bit of digging. According to the Wildlife Trusts, there's three species of snake native to the UK. They are the grass snake or Vipera berus, the adder, Natrix helvetica and the smooth snake or Coronella austriaca. If I'm saying that right, who knows. Now I was surprised to not see the trouser snake on that list, which is otherwise known as Longus pipus or as Michael Palin once said, Biggest Dickus. It's likely that Colin, if he ever even did catch and eat a snake, was referring to either the grass snake or the adder, as the smooth snake is very rare and confined to sandy heaths in Dorset, Hampshire and Surrey. The funniest part of this whole survivalist thing, aside from my trouser snake joke, is that Colin's colleague said he regularly ate takeaways. To me, I reckon he just like read a couple of magazines, went camping once and fancied himself as a man of the land. But we're now getting to the more sinister portion of this story. As well as boasting about how to kill and eat defenceless reptiles, Colin also bragged about strangling and torturing cats. Why is it always cats? It's common for serial killers to torture and kill animals, but on almost every occasion, it's cats. Maybe it's just because they're pussies. Colin had two wives prior to committing the crimes which led to his final arrest. He met his first wife when he was 27 and working as a restaurant chef. Virginia Zamet, known affectionately as Ginny, was a 36-year-old with tetraplegia or quadriplegia. That means she's unable to move or feel all four of her limbs. Ginny was hit by a car when she was 24 and broke her neck in two places. She eventually had tendon transplants in both of her arms, which enabled her to not only move both arms, but to type and play the piano, albeit only using one finger on each hand. She became a disabled sports person who held British records in the Paralympics for swimming, discus throwing and club throwing. Ginny met Colin at a survivalism lecture and the pair soon became an item. They were married for nearly five years, but Colin later admitted that he had an affair with another woman throughout his marriage to Ginny. He said he used to hide Ginny's wheelchair while she slept, so that, if she by chance woke up, she wouldn't be able to catch him in the act in the other room. That's absolutely disgusting, isn't it? What a sicko. Ginny said that Colin was great with her young daughter, and even once saved a young boy from drowning in a quarry, but that he still had a dark side to his personality. He would mention having both a good force and an evil force within himself. I'd make a Star Wars reference here, but I've never seen any of them. Despite feeling an evil force at times, Colin never sought help from a professional. He even once threatened to kill Ginny before they eventually separated. Colin's second wife, Janet, was also considerably older than him. He was 35 and she was 42. Janet was a pub landlady in the southwestern county of Devon and Colin helped to run the pub. For reasons which will become clear, the marriage didn't last very long. The couple separated within a year of taking their respective marriage vows. Prior to their separation, the couple once went to a fancy dress party on New Year's Eve. Colin decided to dress as a Nazi. 
He also went on to tell Janet that he hated gay men, though he wasn't sure why that was. Janet felt that something may have happened in Colin's early life which led to this lifelong hatred, though he never opened up about it when pressed. Maybe it was the four men he says approached him, perhaps he was sexually assaulted as a child and we just don't know about it. Either way, something must have triggered this intense dislike of gay men. Job-wise, Colin couldn't hold one down to save his life. He worked as a doorman at nightclubs and volunteered as a fireman, before finally finding his true calling as a night shelter worker in South End. He bloody loved that job, and he was a popular member of the team. Having said that, his former boss Richard Higgs said that several unfounded allegations were made against Colin by certain members of staff. The allegations and pressure he was receiving in relation to them forced him to resign. He was devastated. An old friend of Collins believes that incident led to him committing the horrendous crimes I'm about to get into. There's other points to consider with regards to his motive but I'll come back to those once I've gone over the chain of events that led to him becoming a serial killer. Our timeline starts on March 8th 1993. Colin was sat drinking in the Colhearn pub which used to be a well-known gay pub in Kensington, West London prior to it being rebranded as a gastro pub in 2008. It's now known as the Pembroke. So why was Colin, someone who hated gay people, chilling in this particular pub? The simple answer is, he was scouting for victims. After scouting the pub for a while, he eventually locked eyes with 45-year-old Peter Walker, who was a theatre director living in Battersea, southwest London. The two got chatting, and Peter told Colin how he was working on a West End play called City of Angels. Things moved rather quickly, and Peter left the pub with Colin in a taxi. They soon arrived back at Peter's flat. It's logical that Colin had pretended to be gay up until this point, as otherwise Peter surely wouldn't have invited him back to his place. Peter had two dogs, and made sure to lock them away in the living room so as not to be disturbed by them whilst Colin and him did their thing in the bedroom. Peter was into his kinky stuff and volunteered to be tied up by Colin. As soon as he was tied up, it was game over. Colin repeatedly punched Peter and whipped him with one of his own dog's leads. After a brief stint of S&M torture, Colin placed a plastic bag over Peter's head and suffocated him. Rather than leaving right away, Colin hung around in the flat for a while and even watched some TV. He felt that if he left right away, he had more chance of being spotted, so he would wait until a less sociable hour to leave. Before he did, he had a rifle through Peter's letters and discovered that he was HIV positive. Upon discovering this, Colin decided to add insult to injury by burning Peter's pubic hair, shoving condoms into his mouth and one of his nostrils, and childishly arranging two of Peter's teddies into the 69 sex position. After a couple of days, Colin rang UK safeguarding charity Samaritans to explain that there were two dogs left alone in Peter's flat. He also made an anonymous phone call to UK newspaper The Sun and said the following. It was my New Year's resolution to kill a homosexual. He was homosexual and into kinky sex. You like that sort of stuff, don't you? Making anonymous phone calls to both Samaritans and The Sun would become regular occurrences after each of Colin's subsequent murders. A couple of months went by before Colin killed again, but this time he really picked up the pace. On May 30th 1993, Colin was once again in the Colhern pub 
and met another gay man named Christopher Dunn. He was a 37-year-old librarian who worked at Halsden Library, northwest London, though he lived in the neighbouring area of Wilsdon, roughly a mile north of Halsden. As with Peter Walker, Christopher told Colin that he was a fan of S&M and enjoyed being dominated by his partners. After taking Colin back to his flat, the pair watched an S&M porn video together. Soon after, Colin tied Christopher up and demanded he reveal his bank card's personal identification number or PIN. After being told what the number was, Colin tortured Christopher by setting fire to his genitals. He explained that he did this in order to ensure that Christopher hadn't lied and had in fact given him the correct pin. After torturing him some more, Colin killed Christopher by strangling him with a piece of cord. Colin then proceeded to leave the flat in Christopher's car and visited an ATM to withdraw £200 from his bank account. Five days later, on June 4th, 1993, Colin struck again. The same chain of events happened. He met a man in the Colherne pub who was into S&M and he was invited back to his flat. The man in question this time was 35-year-old businessman Perry Bradley III, who was a US citizen and son of Texas Democratic Party fundraiser Perry Bradley Jr. What's interesting about Perry is that he wasn't known to be gay, though it may be that he just hadn't come out yet to his friends and family. Perhaps his father's political sort of agenda prevented him from coming out comfortably. Perry allowed Colin to tie him up, but this time Colin used a noose as opposed to a plastic bag or a piece of cord. He demanded Perry's pin as well as £100 in cash. I assume he knew Perry had the money lying around or knew he had some money to his name. Once Colin had acquired Perry's pin and the cash, he tightened the noose and Perry was killed. On this occasion, he hung around in the flat listening to the radio whilst he waited for a more unsociable hour in which to leave. Another five days passed before Colin killed again. June 9th, 1993 was when the murder of 33-year-old care worker Andrew Collier occurred in his flat in Dalston, East London. After tying Andrew up and going through his belongings, Colin discovered that, like Peter Walker, Andrew was HIV positive. Upon discovering this, Colin decided to humiliate Andrew. He later said, I wanted him to have no dignity in death. He firstly tortured Andrew by setting fire to various parts of his body, including his genitals. He then killed Andrew with a noose, as he had with Perry. He then reverted back to his old hobby and killed Andrew's cat, Millie. Colin later told the Sun newspaper, I pissed myself when I read I was an animal lover. I thought I would give you a lot something to think about, so I killed the cat. The humiliation Colin was referring to came in the form of shoving Andrew's penis into Millie's mouth and then placing a condom on the cat's tail. The random placement of condoms on his victims was Colin's attempt at having his own calling card or signature. Perhaps in the heat of the moment, Colin inadvertently made his first mistake. He wasn't as thorough with his crime scene cleanup as he had been previously. Usually, he would wipe down every single surface and even use a different pair of gloves to commit each murder. On this occasion, one of his fingerprints was left at the crime scene after he left. It's worth noting too that before he did leave, he stole £70 in cash from Andrew's flat. He made another anonymous call at this point, but not to Samaritans or the Sun. He called the police. He rang them up, still opting to remain anonymous, and said, 
If you don't stop me, I will do one a week. It started as an exercise to see if it could be done and I could get away with it. He also said that he felt as if he was on a roller coaster at this point and was continually accelerating. Colin killed his fifth and final victim on June 15th, 1993, six days after killing Andrew Collier. 41 year old Emmanuel Spiteri was a chef from Malta who had been living in the UK for over 20 years. Colin went back to Emmanuel's flat, which this time was located in Catford, South East London. His trademark was now set as he placed a noose around Emmanuel's neck and demanded his pin. This time though, Colin faced some resistance from Emmanuel and he put up quite a fight. Colin later said, He was a very brave, strong-minded man, but I couldn't allow him to stick around and recognise me. He killed Emmanuel by tightening the noose after regaining control of the situation. After this, he called the police again to explain how he had killed a fifth man. Once more, he remained anonymous. He even suggested to the police that he was now officially a serial killer, as he had read once that the FBI stated you needed to kill four or more people in order to be labelled as one. Before Colin left the flat, he set it alight, and even at one point considered torching the whole neighbourhood by leaving the gas on in Emmanuel's flat. Luckily, he didn't. He got the urge to set the flat on fire as he said there was a bit of an arsonist inside of him, as, he claims, there is with every fireman. The fifth murder was where he truly fucked up. He was caught on CCTV at Charing Cross Railway Station, which is also known as London Charing Cross Station. The station had just been fitted with one of London's first CCTV cameras, and police had been sorting through 450 plus hours of footage for a clue, as Emmanuel's journey home to his flat involved going through Charing Cross Station. The image Colin was caught on showed Emmanuel with a male walking directly behind him. The photo was published by police on July 2nd, 1993, and Colin immediately recognised himself as the man behind Emmanuel. Police received several calls from the public who claimed that they had either seen or spoken directly with the unknown male figure in the Colhern pub. What Colin did next is, to me, truly bizarre. He paid a visit to his solicitor on July 19th, 1993. Off topic, but that was my fourth birthday. He came up with some bogus story about how the image was of him and that he was with Emmanuel that day, but that he hadn't killed him. I guess he wanted to proactively attempt to cover his own tracks. Why come forward if you're innocent, right? The lies continued as he explained that a third man was present at Emmanuel's flat and after explaining that he didn't want a threesome, Colin claims to have left right away. The third man wasn't Orson Welles by the way. The police didn't buy this ridiculous story and charged Colin with the murder of Emmanuel Spiteri, arresting him that same day. Two days later, police matched the fingerprint left at Andrew Collier's flat with that of Colin's and charged him with his murder as well. Furious that the police were only charging him with two murders and not the five he'd committed, he eventually confessed in court. He said, plain and simply, I am the gay serial killer. It's ridiculous how the police's tactic of deliberately charging him with only two murders actually led to a confession. The man was clearly desperate to go down in history as a serial killer. In my opinion, he still isn't a serial killer as there wasn't enough time and consideration left between the murders. To me, 
Colin Ireland was technically a spree killer. After pleading guilty at the Old Bailey on December 20th, 1993, Colin Ireland was handed five life sentences by Mr Justice Sachs. Judge Sachs said in his closing statement, To take one life is an outrage. To take five is carnage. You express the desire to be regarded as a serial killer that must be matched by your detention for life. He was subsequently added to the list of prisoners serving out a whole life tariff, which meant that he would never be released from prison. Colin was open and honest at the Old Bailey and gave a detailed insight into how he planned and carried out the murders. The cord he used to tie up each victim was of such a common type that police would have had a ridiculously hard time tracing it back to him. He also used handcuffs which he bought at different shops to make his victims escape even less likely. Colin would make sure his pockets were empty before visiting the men's flats so as not to leave any personal items at any of the crime scenes. As I mentioned earlier, he wiped down all the surfaces and even took home food, plates and cutlery he may have used after the murders. As for a motive, surprisingly the fact he killed gay men was nothing to do with their sexual preference. Colin stated that he chose gay men who were into S&M because he felt they would be easy targets. He also felt there wouldn't be much sympathy held for gay men as murder victims. He once said that he had always dreamed of doing the perfect murder and even made becoming a serial killer his New Year's resolution for 1993. After a lifetime of being a nobody, Colin essentially wanted notoriety and attention, even if that meant becoming infamous rather than famous. In May 2007, a report by the LGBT Plus Advisory Group found that the Metropolitan Police's inquiry into the murders was, quote, hampered by a lack of knowledge of the gay scene in London and the special culture of SNM bondage. In particular, valuable time was lost before the police managed to recognise two common threads to the crimes. These links were established only after the death of the fourth victim. The report went on to say, if we borrow the terminology of the McPherson report, historical police practice amounted to institutional homophobia and transphobia. Colin Ireland died at 9.20am at Wakefield Prison on February 21st, 2012. A prison service spokesperson stated the cause of death was natural causes. He was 57 years old. And that was the story of British murderer Colin Ireland. This story was originally going to be the season 2 finale, then the season 3 opener, but I had a bit of a reshuffle and it ended up here as the 5th episode of season 3. It's an episode I've wanted to cover for a while and I'm happy with how it's turned out. What do you think of the case? I'd love to hear from you in the YouTube comments or via social media. For more on British murders, please check out all my social media as well as the YouTube if you're listening on audio only. My link tree for everything, my merchandise, Patreon, buy me a coffee, all my social medias is within that Linktree link, so please do utilise that. The biggest Patreon perk is ad-free episodes released a day early. If you want to get on that, feel free to sign up. Or if you want to make a one-off donation, buy me a coffee is the one to choose. All funds received go to the show's production and research. It's greatly appreciated. And if you want to send a case suggestion in, hit me up on socials or send me an email, britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Reviews can be left on iTunes and Podchaser. Greatly appreciated. Increase the show's exposure massively, so please keep those coming in. Thanks to everyone who's left one so far. And before I sign off, 
I did mention at the start of the episode, but here's a bit more information about the podcast, which is sort of my mate Lyndon's. It's called Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. It's a similar concept to British Murders in that it's a bite-sized length. The episodes last anywhere from sort of 15 to 20 minutes. And Lyndon does a great job of telling the stories in a way that's so relaxing. It's like being at the pub with your mate, listening to him telling you a true crime case. Any waffle he has is safe for the end, and he openly admits that. And he tells you at the end as well when the waffle is about to start. And he says, look, if you don't want to listen to it, switch it off, guys. I love that. I just think that's so funny. I listen to the waffle, by the way. He's a lovely guy as well, so please do check him out. I've put the link to his show in the notes of this episode. But that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Hi everybody, and welcome to Murder at Bedtime with me, your host, Lyndon. This is a 15 minute or so true murder bedtime story. Murder at Bedtime will never change. There will never be waffle during the story. No adverts, no sponsors, just an uninterrupted bedtime story. The waffle is all at the end, so if you want to, just switch me off then, or carry on listening to my gobbledygook, and I hope I can keep you entertained enough to want to keep coming back. Sleep well, stay safe, avoid frogs and boxes, they're all crazy, so good night. <laughs>